My name's Gordon Carpenter. I'm the youth director here at Horizon. So if you're a guest this morning, um, I have some good news. I'm not the normal one who preaches, so come back next week, um, and we'll see you there. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. And once you get there, uh, stand up. This will do two things. One, it shows who knows the Bible best. And two, it allows us to honor God's word together. So Luke chapter 1, verses 26, my kids are up, through uh, 38. Um, Here now, the reading of God's word. God's word is holy and inerrant and inspired and infallible, and we respect it by standing. And it will be read aloud by me. Please read along silently. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he, the angel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Uh, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. Uh, Remain standing as I pray, and we uh, can take a seat after that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I'm overcome this morning again with this message that was read aloud with, with the songs, with the gathering of your people to celebrate this, the birth of the Christ child, as we discuss briefly in the next few minutes this morning, the annunciation of the angel Gabriel to Mary. God, I ask that you bless my mouth. You give me words to say that are filled with your spirit. You bless the hearers now. You open hearts to receive this truth. Let none of us go away unchanged, but let every one of us go away with a fresh understanding of the praise that is due to your Son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So you heard the word of God read aloud. This message will be broken up into uh, five main points, and I'll do my best to show you in the text where I get these points. Um, Point number one, the situation. We're going to take a look at what's happening in redemptive history, and immediately in this situation, we're going to look at the first part of the conversation between the angel 
and Mary. We're going to look at a question that Mary asks to the angel. We're going to look at the Annunciation, which again is what this whole passage of Scripture is called, the announcement of the Christ child. And then we're going to conclude this morning with the response. If I was a better preacher, I would have another shun word there. Um, I thought about conclusion, but that's not, that'd be a stretch. So uh, the situation, the conversation, the question, the annunciation, and the response. The situation, verses 26 through 29. Um, Before we jump immediately to the text, it's always a good idea to take a few steps back and look at contextually where we are in redemptive history. So before we jump directly to the angel visit to Mary, let me fill you in on a couple things just in case you didn't know. Thousands of years ago, God called a pagan man named Abram, and he said, hey, Abram, you're no longer going to be called Abram. You're going to be called Abraham. And Abraham, you are going to birth my people, Israel. And through this pagan turned saint, Abraham birthed the nation of Israel. And for the first Um, several hundred years of Israelite history, they were known as a theocracy where God is their king. They didn't have a human king. God was their king. They had a human representative, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, later Moses, and then the judges who represented God's kingship, but God was their king. Then we know that the Israelite nation went into slavery for a while. They were freed from slavery in the Exodus They wandered around the wilderness, they fought through Canaan, and then they went through the cycle of the book of Judges. All the while, God is their king, and he appointed men as mouthpieces to to be his representative. And then we know that towards the end of the book of Judges, the people of Israel kind of rebelled against this theocratic idea of God as their king, and they're like, hey, this is weird, this ethereal force out there. We don't want as our king anymore. We want a human representative as our king because we want an earthly king that we can follow. Be careful what you wish for, says the Bible, essentially. Um, God gave them Saul, and much like our first father, Adam, Saul fell, and the Lord ripped the throne away from Saul, and who was Saul's successor? David. And a note about David, David is the guy in Israelite history. Yes, there was Abraham. Yes, there was Moses. But when it comes to the nation state of Israel, David was the guy. Make Israel great again. We have to get a king like David. Yeah. We have to get a king like David to come back. Because it's going to be through David, says Israel, that that our physical kingdom will be established. But here's a point. The, the, the throne of David that was promised to David by, David by God to be established forever was for David, not through David's power. Because God is faithful and God is going to be the one that does this. Even though God is not um, the official um, elected, whatever, earthly king and David is, it's going to be for David, not through David, and this will matter later. But even David, the second king, wasn't perfect because he was an imperfect man. And David birth Solomon. Solomon had sons. Eventually, the kingdom of Israel was split in a civil war. There was exile uh, and slavery in the north, exile and slavery in the south. And then uh, you have hundreds of years of divine silence. And before that divine silence, God again spoke through mouthpieces, spoke through prophets, spoke through representatives of himself. And then out of nowhere at the end of Malachi, uh, there's hundreds of years of divine silence. All throughout Israelite history, God had a mouthpiece among his people until, this, until these few centuries. 
And then last week we looked at, boom, the, the angel shows up and God starts speaking to his people again. And God says, oh, I'm not leaving you in silence anymore. You want another mouthpiece because I'm going to give you one. And John is going to be my mouthpiece. John is going to be my prophet. John is going to be the spirit of Elijah reborn. Not literally, but he's going to be Elijah reborn. And, and that was the biggest deal in centuries to the Israelite people is what we learned about last week. But there's, there's something about Mary. And there's, there's something about the angel's visit to Mary that even trumps the visit to Zachariah and Elizabeth last week. So for my 90s rom-com fans, that's the title of this message. There's something about Mary. Now we're going to look at the situation uh, a little bit more up close, immediately what's happening. Verse 26, please read along uh, silently with me. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. There's a few things in this first verse we, first verse we have to talk about. In the sixth month, some people try to date the birth of the, the Christ child, the Messiah, using the, in the sixth month. They're like, oh, in the sixth month of the Jewish calendar, so we add nine months, and, that, and they try to get a rough idea when Jesus was born. Um, no. In the sixth month, uh, the verses immediately preceding this say Elizabeth hid herself for five months, and in the sixth month, this thing takes place. So this is talking about uh, the timeline of the last angelic visit. Um, it's really hard to, bir- uh, to date the birth of the Messiah. Um, secondly, um, Gabriel. Why is this important? The name Gabriel in the Bible is important for a couple reasons. There's only about four or three, depending on how you read it, named angels in the entire Bible. Most of the time when angels show up, they're not named because their names are not important. You have Michael, the archangel. You have Lucifer or Satan, the devil, a fallen angel. And then you have another name that, depending on how you read it, could be Lucifer or could be another demon. And then you have Gabriel. Gabriel's name means the Lord is my strength. Literally, God is a strong man. Um, The Lord is my strength. This will be important later. And then thirdly, in this verse, the first point of the situation, Nazareth. Why is that important? Nazareth is about 55 miles north of Jerusalem. And to put it in today, uh, today's terms, Nazareth is a like backward, small, podunk, redneck town. The gospel writer John actually quotes someone saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, think about like those people from that part of Greenville, if they walked into, in, into Horizon, how you as good Christians would think about them. That's the uh, reputation, that's the area um, that Gabriel visits. Uh, Psalm 22 says the Christ will be despised by his own. Isaiah 53 says that he was scorned and rejected by men. He was sent to his own and his own didn't receive him. Maybe this has something to do with his birthplace. And maybe this has something to do with prejudice. You see, God often uses the unexpected and even the shameful to bring about his glory. He often uses the unexpected and the shameful to bring about his glory. Verse 27, this angel comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Three things in this verse. Virgin, my lady's in the room. Um, This word, uh, the the time of this, she was probably 12. So at the preteen to like at the latest, like early teen, like 13. One time I had all the people that this applied to stand up. I'm not going to do it. I noticed my girls even left. They were sitting on the front row. 
And they were like, oh, he's going to call us out. So they, they moved out of the front row. Um, I'm, you don't have to stand up. But she is a virgin betrothed. She's about uh, 12 or 13 years old. Betrothal. Um, this is uh, super romantic. Hallmark, eat your heart out. Betrothal, uh, normally this like 12 or 13-year-old girl was bought by a man that she didn't know. And she was bought because the family was losing a worker. And the groom paid a bride price to the family to help offset the cost of losing this worker. That's Mary from a backwoods podunk town. Finally, in this verse, of the house of David, the gospel writer makes it clear that Joseph is of the house of David. Why is this important? Remember, make Israel great again. We have to get David through his line. Our earthly kingdom is going to be established. You can think of Joseph right now, if this is not too nerdy for you, as sort of Aragorn, pre-return of the king. He is uh, in legal line of succession to the throne. Joseph is the heir apparent to the throne of David, so Joseph is the king without a crown. And when he marries Mary and takes her progeny, her son, Jesus, into his family, legally speaking, the line of succession passes to the oldest male, Jesus. So even though we don't know Mary's uh, ancestry. We know Joseph's, and legally speaking, Jesus becomes the heir apparent to the throne. Jesus becomes the line of David. Again, that will be important later. Verse 28, we move on. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Um, A few things about O favored one here. Number one, again, I, I can't stress this enough. Let's look at Mary's life. She is from a small, nothing town with a horrible lot in life because she's been sold into marriage into a man that she doesn't know. Oh, and by the way, she is now about to be pregnant out of wedlock. So the shame that follows her from her, uh, the, the prejudice surrounding her town will now follow her because she had, she's going to have to have a shotgun or um, a bow and arrow wedding. And um, yeah, thanks. Um, and uh, this shame is going to follow her. She is sold to a man she doesn't know, she's about to be uh, married, forcefully married, pregnant out of wedlock. The shame of this will follow her child the rest of his life. Jesus uh, will be, there'll be rumors and mockery behind his back. Oh, this is a bastard. He, he, he doesn't have a real father. Oh, favored one. You're, you're supposed to read that and scratch your head. Mary doesn't seem favored by the worldly standards. But maybe God's definition of favor is different than our definition of favor. Some of you, this morning, God would never call me to do anything that would be shameful or uncomfortable. Uh, God can't use my story because my story is too broken and it's too, my, my past is too hard. The, the birth of the God-man, the Christ child, came through this situation. Again, God uses the unexpected and even the shameful to bring about his glory. Um, I won't belabor this point. This is a side note um, about this term of favored one. The Greek word here is kekeratomene, um, coming from the Greek verb kerao. Now, kerao, we understand really well. It means to grace, to bestow favor, to give grace to someone. Kekeratomene, the word here, oh favored one, is unique. And I mean that literally. Luke makes this word up. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible, and it's not used anywhere else in secular ancient Greek literature, at least that I've found. I'm sure Ralph Bass is fact-checking me as I speak. This is a uh, made-up word. Why is this important? 
our Catholic brothers and sisters impregnate this word, with, pun intended, with more um, meaning than it should have. There are monasteries and cathedrals all over the world, kikaratomene. They say Mary has uh, not only found favor, been given favor by God, but she is so favored by God because she has merit of favor, merit of grace on her own. So she's so full of favor that she has some despair. So our Catholic brothers and sisters venerate, pray to, and exalt Mary because of this word. The Latin translation, the Vulgate, of the Greek is plenia gratia, full of grace. So what's another word for greetings? We sang it in our hymns this morning. Hail. Maybe this rings a bell. Hail Mary, full of grace. That's where this comes from. They believe Mary has merited grace herself. And that she has so much that she can spare some to us. Let me tell you this. Um, it, they put too much stock in this word. Uh, of course, we believe that as Reformed Christians. Um, later, she is said to have found favor. This is the same type of language used when Stephen gets, um, have found favor, not kakaratomene. Has found favor is the same type of language used when Stephen is about to be stoned and martyred, when Noah is called by God, oh, favored one, has found favor. Nobody thinks Stephen can give them grace. Nobody thinks Noah can give them grace. Um, Mary here, the gospel's thrust, this is why this is important. The gospel writer's thrust is Mary is to be seen as an example, not to be exalted. She's supposed to be seen as an example, not to be exalted, because the example of Mary is profound. I think Reformed Christians shy away from talking about the importance of Mary because we don't want to sound Catholic. But Mary is to be seen as an example. She is an exemplary believer. We'll see that at the end. Her faith and obedience is beyond par in the world. But she is meant to be seen as an example, not to be exalted. Finally, the situation, verse 29. This is point one. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Briefly, um, wives and mothers, you know this. Wives, when your husband comes home and he notices your hair and he didn't have to tell him and he brings you flowers, what's your first question? What did you do? Mothers, when your child comes to you and they're like, hey, I washed my dishes, mom. I folded my own laundry and I even took the trash out. What's your first question? What do you want? Mary, are you buttering me up, angel? Oh, favored one, really? What do you want? That's Mary's trepidation. Um, the Greek word here is diatoroxte for greatly troubled. What word do you hear in diatoroxte? Diet, greatly troubled. Diets are not worth the trouble. It has nothing to do with that. I, I shouldn't have left that in there. <laughs> That's, okay. Well, I literally, I should have cut that. All right, point number two, the conversation. <laughs> We're going to look at the first part of the conversation between the angel and Mary in verses 30 through 33. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That's a passive word. You have found favor. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Uh, we got to pause here. Um, don't be afraid, Mary. Phobos. Phobia. That's real. I'm not going to pull your leg anymore. Um, pho phobia. Don't be afraid, Mary. Um, I, there's like something passed around pastors 
and I don't know how accurate it is. It's something like, um, what phrase is used 365 times in the Bible? Don't be afraid. So God reminds you once a, once a day not to be afraid. I don't know how accurate that is. Maybe it's don't be afraid, fear not, be of good courage. Maybe it's passive, or, um, um, positive and negative. Do not be afraid. Uh, it, it, it's a theme here. And if we go back to Gabriel's name, the Lord is my strength. Don't be afraid, Mary. The Lord is my strength is telling you this. Fear versus favored. Phobia versus favored. The the question can be asked this morning, uh, do you feel favored by the world's standards? Probably not. Are you scared today over something? What is frightening you this morning? Are you scared of your next career move? Are you scared of your next relationship? Are you scared of your next, or are you scared of your lack of relationship? Are you scared of raising your children? Are you, are you on, the, on the brink of the ultimate journey and you're scared of what the next stage of afterlife looks like? Let me tell you this. The reason the Reformed people shouldn't be scared of talking about Mary is because you, if you are an elect son or daughter of the king, are a favored one. And the same message that God is my strength is, is telling the favored one, Mary, is the same one that God is my strength, Gabriel, is telling you this morning. If you have been a favored one of the king, an elect son or daughter of the king, do not be afraid. I don't know if it's used 365 times in the Bible. I know that it's emphasized a lot. Because just like Gabriel came to Daniel when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and, and, and Gabriel said, hey, the Lord is your strength. You're not doing this in your own. You're in the exile. You're in Babylon. You're behind enemy lines. The Lord is your strength, Daniel. I'm going to help you. The the angel, through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel writer, would have you here this morning. What you are afraid of, if you have found favor with God and have been graced by God, the Lord is your strength. The Apostle Paul, he who began a good work in you is what will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Secondly, in these two verses, the name of the child, Jesus. I want you to look with me now. I'm going to begin some comparing and contrasting between this week and last week. Um, Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. It's an active idea. Um, John, the name of the child given last week, means graced by God. It's a passive idea. There's a theme again, a passive act of grace. John was a big deal that Gabriel uh, named the son John. Jesus is a bigger deal because there's been lots of grace. There's been lots of people graced by God in the Bible. Jesus is bringing actively, not passively, the salvation of God once and for all. So Jesus is better than John even in the name. John brings grace. Jesus brings not just grace, but salvation. Here's some more comparing and contrasting in the the next verses. Verse 32, he will be called great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. John was also called great. John will be a great prophet. Jesus was called great. Jesus will be the great son, heir. John is called a prophet of the Most High. Jesus is called the son of the Most High. In their titles, Jesus is superior. 
the throne of David forever. Remember um, the, the legal standing. That's why this is important. Jesus is in the legal succession, the line of legal succession to the throne. So Jesus, upon his birth, is the king without a crown. And ironically, the ones who killed him wrote king of the Jews above his head. Unironically for you and me, because he is the king of the Jews. Even legally speaking, we know that from the heritage and from the context. Jesus is the king. This whole passage points to his supremacy. That's the first part of the conversation. Now we look at Mary's question. In verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Here are a couple similarities between the visit, a couple more similarities between the visit to Mary and the visit to Zechariah. Both are troubled when Gabriel comes to them. Gabriel responds to both with don't be afraid. Both are given the name of the coming child, John and Jesus. Gabriel says of both children, again, they will, they will be great. The work of the Holy Spirit is referenced in both accounts. Both Zechariah and Mary respond with a question, and the result of this uh, uh, angelic visit is a hymn in both accounts. There's a lot of similarities. There are noticeable differences, though, in this question. Remember uh, Zechariah's question in verse 18 he said, how shall I know this, for I am an old man? A, a literal translation, it's going to be a little awkward. A literal translation is, according to what will I know this? There's implicit doubt built into Zachariah's question. I don't believe you. Prove it. Mary's question, how will this be? There's implicit trust built into Mary's question. I don't know how this is going to work out. Let me know. I believe you. Zechariah and Elizabeth have an extraordinary conception by the natural ways because she was barren and they were old. Mary has an extraordinary conception in an extraordinary way, and we'll look at that in a minute. Again, Mary's faith here. She is supposed to be seen as an example, not someone to be exalted. We don't have to shy away about talking about the importance of Mary. There's something about Mary, remember but she is meant to be seen as an example, not exalted. The question can be asked back to this question by us. Do we doubt like Zechariah? God, I don't, I don't believe your promises. Prove them to me. I don't believe you're going to be a God to my children and my children's children. Prove it. I don't believe that you're good. I don't believe that you love me. I don't believe that you want your be the best for me. I don't believe that what you've given me in my life is the best for me. Do we have implicit doubt built into the questions we ask God? Or, like the example we are supposed to see in Mary, do we have implicit trust? God, I, I believe you. I take you at your word. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I, but I believe you. You promised to be a God to my children and my children's children. My child is running from you and couldn't be further from you. I don't know how you're going to bring him back, but I believe that your promise is true. And I can't wait to see how you're going to do it. God, I don't like my lot in life. I am... Uh, stricken by trials and physical ailments and, and, and disease. And I don't, I don't, you haven't blessed me like you've blessed other people. 
I believe this is your best for me. I don't see how it works, but I believe this is your best for me. Are we like Zachariah or are we like the example Mary? We're probably like Zachariah. We're supposed to be like Mary. Fourthly, we come to the Annunciation. Again, what this whole passage of Scripture is called, the announcement of the Christ child. In verses 35 to 37, after Mary uh, asked this question, how's this going to work out? Can't wait to see. The angel answered her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. How's this going to work out, angel? Um, I'm a virgin. I've been to uh, Israelite sex ed. I know how conception happens. Um, How's it going to work out? I believe you, but I don't really know how. And the angel answers her. There's a couple things unique about the Annunciation. And I, I don't mean to keep uh, picking on Catholics. Um, it's, it's just in the text. And if you have a Catholic background or you are Catholic and you're visiting this morning, come up and tell me how wrong I am after. Um, and I'm so sorry for offending you. There's a couple things unique here. Mary's question uh, is the same question we would all ask. I've never, I, I don't have a husband. I don't have a wife. I've never had sex. How am I going to have a baby? Because it's, she's thinking naturally. There's something interesting that's happening in this text. There's no sexual act that's referenced, ever. Words like the Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you are used. There is Greek words for sex. There is Greek euphemisms for sex. None of them are used here. The idea here is similar. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the deep. There's no sexual act here mentioned. By the way, this is um, a little bit of an adult conversation, but it's okay, we're adults here. Um, an objection to Christianity today, more than ever, in, in the, in the um, hashtag MeToo era, is that I can't believe in your God who condones and acts in divine rape. That's an actual uh, crass objection to Christianity. And, and why do you need to know that? Well, one, it is utterly blasphemous. Because it's, 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 it's not what's happening. It's not even in the subtleties or the nuances of the text. It's not what's happening. And if you, think, if you think that's what's happening, and that's your objection to Christianity, you have a man-centered theology. Your biblical anthropology is way too high, and you have no idea of how sinful and fallen and, and dead in your sins you actually are. The point here is, is not the same point that this is, again, another objection to Christianity. Um, this is not a new thing. There's been countless stories in other religions of deities uh, having sex with mortals and, and birthing progeny because of it. Um, uh, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, the Chinese, um, all have stories of deities coming into mortals and, and having children. Um, this isn't new to you. Think about the heroes of Greek mythology. That's exactly what happened with them. This is also not new to you, depending on how you read Genesis chapter 6, because the sons of God entered into the daughters of men. So there's a few ways to read that, but depending on how you read that, it even is predated in the Bible. So some objections say, oh, this Christianity can't be true because even your virgin birth just rips off of other religions. 
No, it, it, it doesn't. In every single one of those other accounts, even in the Genesis 6 accounts, sexuality is highlighted. Either the mortal was so good looking that the deity couldn't control himself, or the deity was just so full of passions that he couldn't control himself, and so he, he found a willing uh, or, or unwilling in some circumstances participant. That's not what's happening here. That's one unique thing. Secondly, unique to this is in every single, uh, is, is the essence of the son, the nature of the child. In every single other one of those stories, the child of mortal and immortal, God and mortal, is uh, either a demigod, like a lesser god, or like a hero, has some, is, is some version of mortal imbibed with like divine qualities. Again, that's, that's not the doctrine of the incarnation. That's not the doctrine we profess. Here, with the virgin Mary, sinful woman, and the Holy Spirit, God completely, having a child, we confess that the child is the God-man. This is the, known as the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Two natures. Unified, un, or, uh, uh, married together in one person. Fully God, fully man. Not a demigod, not a lesser God, not a mortal who became God like in every other story. This Jesus, this Christ child, is God fully and man fully. In fact, this uh, doctrine is defended all throughout church history. Um, and if you want further reading on this, you can read the Athanasian Creed. I could read it for you today, but it would do you better to read it. Um, about uh, hundreds, and, if not thousand years ago, there's a debate in church history. Um, is Jesus like substance of the Father? Homoi usius? Or is he same substance of the Father? Homoousius. And orthodoxy throughout church history has maintained that the Son of Mary and the Holy Spirit is fully God. Homoousius. Same substance of God and fully man. Why is this important? Why am I stressing this? Why are you drinking from a theological fire hose on Christmas when all you want to be talked about is like uh, the infant baby Jesus and how cute he was who never pooped? Okay, like, why, why are you drinking from a theological fire hose this morning? It is important when it comes to the debt that you owe. Sinner sitting in your chair. Anselm, first, uh, uh, one of the great theologians of um, the Middle Ages, around 11th century, first defended this doctrine. Why is this important? Fully God, fully man. It has to do with the debt that you owe. What happened at the fall? Man broke an eternal covenant. Man, Adam's race, sinned against an eternal and infinite God. So who owed the debt? Who owes the debt? You do, as Adam's race. Who was demanded to pay the debt? You were, Adam's race. What's the problem? You're mortal. Adam was mortal. You are finite. You can't pay an infinite debt. You can't pay an eternal debt. Only the eternal can pay for the eternal. Only the infinite can pay for the infinite. So the Messiah, the Christ child, needed to be of Adam's race, Mary, because Adam's race owed the debt and needed to be God, Holy Spirit, because only God, the eternal, could pay an eternal debt. 
Michael Horton puts it this way. It's way simpler. Only God could save. Only man should save. You owe an infinite debt to an eternal God, and as a mortal, you have no hope of paying it. But the immortal and the infinite and the eternal stepped down in finite moment in time, took on flesh, didn't put aside his divine nature, but took on human nature, two natures in one person, the hypostatic union in the God-man. And the God-man lived a perfect life as a man and died the debt of men. And in his rising, his divinity conquered sin. That's why this is important. That is the Christ child we celebrate in this season. Finally, we look at Mary's response. In verse 38, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Again, we don't need to shy away from talking about how special Mary is. None of us would have this response. If this was our lot in life and God chose for us to bear this prejudice, this shame the rest of our life, to have this uncomfortable of a life, none of our response would be, I'm a servant of the Lord. No, 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 we would argue and we would fight. I say we, maybe me, maybe you guys are better saints than me. I, I wouldn't respond like Mary did. She is meant to be an example, not exalted. We look to Mary's faith because it's an example of what we strive for. But the problem is we should not exalt her. Exaltation is reserved for the God-man, the Christ child, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, born in flesh, bearing the sin that you uh, deserve to pay for. That is who exaltation is reserved for. That is what this season is all about. This week, what are the the takeaways? There's a lot. Exalt Christ. More, better, more frequent, because you understand better what happened at this conception, what happened at this birth. Love him more. And if this sounds like a mystery to you and it doesn't make sense what I just said, well, we conclude with the song this morning, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. We, I, I can't say it better than that. We, we don't fully understand this. I can put fancy words and big words to it. But this is the reality of your faith. This is the reality of what you confess. And I hope this week, you come to appreciate and praise Christ more.